everybody. You're listening to The Big Tent here on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM Caldwell, Boise. I'm your host today, Charlie Hunt, here with uh, my two co-hosts, Jackie Kettler and Luke Fowler. We're all professors in Boise State's School of Public Service. A lot going on in the world today. Uh, a lot a lot of troubling stuff happening uh, around the, the country, even beyond COVID-19. Protests have, have sprung up around the nation following, as the uh, Minnesota Attorney General is calling it now, uh, sort of alleged uh, second-degree murder of George Floyd at the hands of police. And, you know, some of the issues that have been cropping up around this have a lot to do with this issue of federalism and whose hand the response and who's in charge of the policies around this issue of police brutality. Jackie and Luke, I want to talk a little bit about this sort of either absence or at least sort of confrontational nature around national leadership, the sort of polarizing opinions about Donald Trump that has mostly left a lot of these policies and responses to folks at the more local level. Luke, how are you sort of thinking about how federalism is playing a role here? And and what role do local leaders have in an issue as fraught as this? You know, Charlie, that's a, a great question. And I mean, really what happens is, particularly when we're talking about policing powers, most of those are held at the local level, right? And states do things with like more high profile crimes. But when it comes to things like even George Ford's, uh, Floyd's arrest and then the subsequent pot or prosecution of the cops, I mean, those are really local authorities, right? Um, and so as much as, as we like to focus on the president and federal re- reactions here, they're not really the, the people that are boots on the ground. They're not really the people that are implementing policy policy here that are enforcing that are in charge of the prosecution. We can think back to the civil rights movement and all the murders that were connected to that. The only federal charges that were ever brought in those cases were for civil rights violations because that's a federal crime. But murder is almost never prosecuted at the federal level, um, which is really important because when we look at places like Minneapolis and seeing all this kind of stuff that's happening there, it's not really Trump as much as we've seen him in the news. It's really about the governor and the mayor there. And the same thing for Atlanta and LA and New York um, and all these other cities. But even here in Boise, I mean, it's really about Lauren McLean and Brad Little and the things that they're doing to, to lead the city more than it is about Donald Trump, because they're ultimately the ones that have the authority over the police department, right? Um, but it also has something to here to say about as much as we can uh, organize and make policy and set standards for, for our community, ultimately, a lot of these policies come down to the individual police officers in the field, how they shape what policy looks like in practice, as opposed to some of these national big level things that we talk about. Um, And so while I think we can't discount Donald Trump's role as a moral leader in all of this, I mean, he's not really ultimately responsible for a lot of things that happen. Like we have to look to the mayors and the governors. And that's something that Barack Obama said in his statement this week, specifically, he called on mayors to consider their use of force policies. Um, And I think that's really important is to consider the fact that presidents and whether our current president realizes or not, are not omnipotent. Um, They do not have total control. They are not the end all and be all. That we have a decentralized system and there's a lot of political actors out there that ultimately have control about how these policies look. Yeah, and Luke kind of mentioned some of the on the prosecuting side of things, but as well at the local level, you have things like hiring of police chiefs or oversight, you know, how oversight of the police works or police union agreements with the state or with the local governments. And so these are all decisions that are made at the local level that can really impact some of the concerns that I think Black Lives Matter and other groups have and are expressing and trying to pull 
push also for changes in things like broken window policing or trying to change kind of the approach or the, some of those standards used. And, you know, as Luke mentioned, like these are things that are happening at the local level. But, you know, we often look at the national level for the ability to help lead us and think through or process what's happening. And and instead we're getting kind of aggressive reactions or, you know, calling in the military, those types of things, which is not the best approach perhaps in this, this situation. In, in particular, as we look at this and ask this question about like what responses should we expect out of the federal government, it's kind of like what really should we re- expect because they're not ultimately in control of all this. Um, but there's been some interesting policy action that has already gone on at the local level. One thing that really stuck out to me was this week the Minneapolis uh, Public School District uh, discontinued their contract with the Minneapolis Police Department. So did the University of Minnesota. Yeah, and meaning that the the police department there will no longer do use do security or stack uh, or, or provide school resource officers in the schools. And this was something that was lobbied by students to the school district. Um, I remember one quote that really stuck out to me was a student saying that the these resource officers made them feel less safe in school because of this history of policy implementation. This was not, you know, again, Congress making an act. This was the school district and school district board. Um, that's ultimately made this decision based on input from students and parents. Um, and they're saying that they don't want the police department involved in their schools anymore. And I think that's a really powerful statement, but they're already making the policy changes to try to correct some of these actions. Yeah, I mean, clearly there's a lot of the main changes that can be made at this level. And we're still learning about the kinds of policies that do and don't work in terms of preventing this kind of violence at the hands of police. Jackie, what are some of the sort of challenges that local political leaders, specifically kind of the political or partisan challenges that local leaders face as they, you know, mayors may be trying to do what President Obama sort of implored them to do in his statement the other day, which is trying to think through what kind of changes they can make that can actually be effective? Like, what are the the political challenges that they face? Yeah, I think there's a few different elements to this, right? And I think... One is acknowledging there's a problem <laughs> and, and being willing to try to work to address it. I think as well, I mean, there's some research that suggests that, you know, there's a lot of differences between Democrats and Republicans in the policies they pursue at the local level when they oversee uh, local government, but not so much on criminal justice. And so I think there's a lot of frustration with some communities of color that they're electing Democrats that they want to be, that they think should be making some of these changes. And they're not really seeing it. And so I think that even within the Democratic Party, there's some pressure to try to push for more changes. I mean, clearly, like when you're looking at situations like looting and this kind of um, distress, this chaos that's going on in communities, I mean, I think the the natural inclination is to meet it with force, which is exactly what our president has called for. But those tend to escalate these situations, right? And really, um, as, as a lot of my, my colleagues in, in public administration and criminal justice have researched, and I've read some, some interesting stuff on this, is the only way that you actually solve these problems in the long term is building community relationships, right? Things like community-based policing, things like continual engagement, um, meeting people on personal levels. Those are not short-term solutions. That's not going to work this week. Um, we're going to see outcomes of that in years. And so it requires a lot of, of tough investment, a lot of time, a lot of talking to people. The problem is that these elected uh, officials get elected on, you know, two or four year terms. And so what's the incentive for them, right? They want to go out and go, oh, we're busting heads and we're doing something rather than we're just talking about it. Because that doesn't seem to be the the thing that, that makes it seem like we're doing something. 
something more active. Um, but ultimately, those active things just escalate these situations and make them worse. And I think you saw after, for example, the protests in Ferguson and in Missouri in 2014, following the killing of Michael Brown, you know, you had certain community support around some kinds of changes, things like body cameras, for example, got a lot of attention. But, you know, body cameras, the, the research says, maybe have kind of a negligible effect and haven't been that effective. And so, you know, what mayors and DAs and other kinds of police chiefs are going to have to be thinking about is prohibiting specific police practices like strangleholds and chokeholds, requiring de-escalation practices, which is sort of the opposite of what we're seeing, you know, police engage in, in a lot of these protests, establish specific practices for the use of force, specific police practices. And in this case, I think a lot of the issue will be sort of trying to work with police unions and try and sort of break through sort of that barrier of political power to try and make some changes there. So I don't I don't envy these local leaders for a lot of the challenges they face here. I do want to note that there seems to be bipartisan support for a lot of the reforms that you were just mentioning, Charlie. So yeah, there's pushback, but it's not like it's only Democrats that want these changes. And so I'm hopeful that as we can evolve the conversation and hopefully we do a better job listening and hearing what's needed we can help move forward to make some of these important changes. Yeah, hopefully hopefully this kind of broad agreement can help lead to some of the policy changes that we've been talking about to ensure that that things like this don't happen again, or at least happen with much, much less frequency. So we're going to leave it there for now, uh, and we'll be right back after a short break. All right, we're back on the Big Tent on Radio Boise, um, discussing some of the current events. And in the last segment, we talked about you know some of the the massive protests that are going on uh, around the country in response to the the, the murder of George Floyd in, in Minneapolis. But you know, we want to kind of take a step back and think about this in the the context of some of the broader events that have been going on in the last couple of months. And for anybody who hasn't been at the bottom of the sea or on Mars, um, you should probably remember that you know we are still in the midst of a, a pandemic uh, of global proportions that have reshaped our society in really important ways. And then in a couple of months, we're also going to, you know, vote for president. We're going to turn it over to our, our chief presidential correspondent here, Charlie, who knows all about these type of things. Like, how do you think this affects our presidential election moving forward in the way that Trump and Biden and even Barack Obama have responded to some of these issues and how they've kind of stepped out and, and made statements here? Well, Luke, that's a complicated question. Uh, I will do my best as our chief presidential correspondent. There are a couple of things that we've been observing that have been happening even before George Floyd's murder that I think are worth bearing in mind. One, as you mentioned, is uh, the coronavirus pandemic, which there was sort of a, a lot of chatter about what could possibly knock a story like this out of the news, or at least off the top of the news, and it turns out it's, you know, nationwide protests. And so, but but you do still have sort of continued concerns, uh, especially as it's worth noting, you know, you have thousands of people gathering in major urban areas. To what extent the coronavirus will continue, if there will be another spike, particularly in the fall, this is something we're all obviously still thinking about. And, you know, as I mentioned on the show a couple of weeks ago, President Trump, who, of course, is running for re-election, has gotten pretty poor grades from the public in terms of polling on how he's handled the coronavirus pandemic. 
he still remains strong in areas like uh, the economy, though that has taken a hit as well since uh, the economy has basically been in free fall since the pandemic began. And then you have Joe Biden, who's been the nominee for a couple, the presumptive Democratic nominee for a couple months now, you know, taking really big leads, at least in national polls and frankly, in a lot of the crucial state polls as well. There are a lot of potential reasons for this. You know, one is sort of the unification of the Democratic Party, which has happened you know, I think about as much as Biden could have hoped for. And you have this sort of national moment around race relations and around these really raw feelings that require a leader, frankly, that has a lot of empathy. This is one of Biden's really strong suits. And, you know, frankly, as I think Jen talked about last week, this is not one of President Trump's strong suits. And so I think you see him and Trump striking really different messages and tones during this crisis that I think might have some uh, some potential impacts on, uh, on, on the election. I did think it was really interesting that at first there was a lot of questions about why wasn't Joe Biden out speaking more. And then it turned out he'd been spending time meeting with protesters, going to, you know, events, trying to listen and learn about what's going on, which I think the more that people kind of understand that's what he's been doing, it's it's played well. I think people are responding to, okay, well, you know, that's actually a really important step that we need to be doing. Biden's very good at empathy. He's very good at talking to people about, you know, and, and empathizing with them and showing that emotion, which is really what people want to hear more than anything else right now. I mean, I think everybody knows like inherently that there's not one big policy, sweeping policy change that are going to fix all these problems. Like we're not going to pass a law and all this is going to go away. I think what they want to know is that other people understand why they're frustrated, that they understand why this is difficult for them, that they understand something and it's not just that their their concerns and their anxieties are getting sweeped under the rug for you know the millionth time in American history that this is a time when people are actually going to stand up and listen and take it seriously and we're going to try to do better as a society. And I think it's worth also sort of noting along those lines, Luke, that, you know, whatever Biden's other sort of faults or weaknesses, you know, among certain portions of the Democratic electorate, like he's, he's not quite as not viewed quite as favorably among young voters, say, as someone like Bernie Sanders. He is very, very popular and beloved in most of the black community. The The black vote is the only reason he won the primary, you know, provide him that boost in South Carolina that sort of propelled him the rest of the way. And I think Democrats also understand that they cannot take the African-American vote for granted. I think Biden gets that probably as well as anyone. And, you know, another area where I'm wondering if it'll have an impact is is in his uh, vice presidential selection. It might strike a very positive tone in the Democratic Party. You know, he's already uh, committed to to choosing a, a woman as his running mate. Uh, choosing a black woman might send that right kind of tone. You know, we talked about folks like Representative Val Demings in Florida. Uh, we talked certainly about Stacey Abrams. That's just, I think, one way that these protests and the kind of nationwide unrest may play a role. I mean, I think I think this is an area that Donald Trump, he may not recognize that he uh, has a weak point here, but I also don't think he's particularly, you know, comfortable in situations like this. I think he'd probably rather be focusing on the economy, but, you know, the economy is also not that great right now. So it seems more and more like one possibility is that, you know, Biden's lead just stays pretty large and that it maybe was predictable that he would have a really good shot of winning this whole time, but it's so hard to, to break through all of the fog of this news to be able to get anything like a good approximation of where the electorate stands. 
Yeah, I think that there's a variety of things like Trump's press conference last week where he didn't address the protests, instead talked about China. And that may play to some of his base very well. But for many people, I think they were very disappointed in that action. Yeah. And I'm just to piggyback on what Jackie said, which is uh, we're a long way from November. And the question is like whether or not these situations continue to play out that long or if they wrap up and we essentially go back to normal. Because as we all know, the American voting public has a short memory and if the economy is back to normal they're back to work there's not protests in the streets they may kind of conveniently forget about all these things that have happened in the last several weeks or several months charlie i believe you said on last week's show um trump continues to play to his base but every time he does particularly in these situations that base seems to get a little more narrow and narrow i mean even inside the republican party there's been lots of people that have been critical of trump's response to this so it seems like that the people that are more and more dissatisfied in him is getting a smaller and smaller group and so even while they might not uh, you know, go to the, the other side um, and vote for Biden, they might just decide to stay home. Yep. And of course, all of that will be sort of happening on the backdrop of what's going on with COVID. Are people going to be voting remote, you know, by mail and, and things like that? So those are all uh, really important factors that we're going to be keeping an eye on. And so that'll do it for this segment. But when we come back for our final segment, we're going to turn to our Idaho elections correspondent, Jackie, uh, to tell us a little bit about uh, what went down in the primary that happened this week. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Big Tent here on Radio Boise. Here today talking about the primary that happened in Idaho this week. A lot of you may have forgotten, even some hosts of this program may have forgotten that this happened amidst all the news. We won't say who, uh, but one person who definitely did not forget is Jackie, our state politics expert. Jackie, talk to us a little bit about what went down in this primary. You know, we were just talking about uh, COVID-19 and the potential impacts that might have on elections and on things like turnout. How did turnout look in this particular primary when there was a big emphasis on things like mail-in ballots? Yeah, it's a great question, right? We completely conducted the election by absentee ballot. And so this was new for, for the majority of voters. And the process was a little complicated, it took a few steps to kind of figure out what was going to happen. But turnout looks to be quite high. Currently, the Idaho Secretary of State's office estimates a 38.5% turnout for the state, which is high higher than any primary election since maybe 1980. (laughs) So it seems like it was actually pretty successful, even though there were bumps along the way that if needed, we can conduct an election via absentee ballot in the future. Now, of course, turnout will be higher in a presidential election, but this seemed to be a pretty successful kind of trial run. That's really interesting. So it sounds like a lot of people turned out to vote. How did things go for the people uh, people on the ballot? What kind of races were on the ballot? What were some of these top line results that, that maybe you were following, whether that was sort of at the federal or the state level? Yeah, it's really interesting that turnout was so high, especially compared to 2018, where we had two competitive gubernatorial primary elections. And so it made sense that turnout was a little higher in that election. This election, we don't really have, we didn't really have that many competitive primary races. Um, There were a few, but in general, they were, we had incumbents that were pretty strong and ended up winning with comfortable margins, or we had candidates that had pretty good name recognition that were able to translate that to to a successful win. Um, We had 
four incumbents lose, it looks like, in the state, one in the Treasure Valley, and then a couple out east. Interestingly, Representative Zollinger lost, and those other incumbents that lost, the more conservative candidate won, though it looks like the Idaho House will be a little more conservative um, than this last session. Is that kind of part? Is that part of sort of a long-term trend that's been happening, or is this kind of more out of the ordinary for this kind of supplanting of maybe not more moderate, but at least less conservative and Republican incumbents being sort of booted out of their seats before they even have a chance to run uh, in the general election? Yeah, it's interesting. Some of these races have flip-flopped several times between like the more conservative and the slightly less conservative candidate kind of back and forth. And so these are several of these districts are just really competitive in the primary, not so much the general. And so the primary election's the key, the key one. And I think this year it looks like the more conservative candidates were able to be more successful. Maybe in some of these districts some people really concerned about the state response to COVID-19 or or just the direction of policy at the national or state level. You know, a variety of things could be happening, but it was interesting to see again, like uh, some more pickups for more conservative candidates. Do you think these kinds of replacements of incumbents could have significant impacts on how the legislature operates, the kinds of issues they take up? Or is it or is it still pretty early to be able to tell what might be, you know, happening the, the next time around in the session? Well, I should note that two of the challengers that beat incumbents were the previous incumbents of the district. And so these were these are people who have been active and involved in politics for a while. So it's not like a true upset where like no one knew who this person was and they beat an incumbent. These are people who have been engaged and involved. So I do think that's kind of an interesting component. But we could start to have questions on, you know, committee makeup, especially something like JFAC, our budget making committee, some of the makeups there that might start to to move a little more conservative as the more conservative members pick up more seats. Well, that's really interesting because at the federal level, you know, you see a lot of times when members of the federal Congress lose as an incumbent in the primary, it's often pretty high profile people. So, for example, just last night, uh, you know, Representative Steve King of Iowa, the controversial, to put it mildly, deeply racist, to put it more accurately, congressman uh, was finally voted out in the primary. You know, that was, he's a figure who obviously is, who is really controversial and was basically almost expelled from the House uh, a couple of years ago because of some pretty racially charged comments he made. Um, But, you know, you've seen this in other places too, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, now one of the sort of best known members of Congress in America, unseated sort of a high ranking Democratic member of Congress. And you had, you know, Eric Cantor, the Republican a few years ago, the Republican majority leader. And so I think that's sort of one interesting contrast maybe between what happens in state legislatures where the maybe pool of candidates is not quite as wide, while sort of these primary upsets at the federal level, I think, tend to be a lot more sort of anti-establishment kind of things. And so that's one sort of interesting contrast, I think, between federal and state level. Along those lines, you may be able to argue that these more conservative um, candidates and members are anti-establishment in some ways, right? Um, and they're often often pushing against the leadership um, in the Idaho legislature, recently the governor. And so while, yes, definitely they are more experienced um, candidates, perhaps, but there may still be that kind of strain there. Yeah, and I think there's a way in which ideology and sort of establishment or anti-establishment can 
go hand in hand a lot of the time. You know, if you're a party leader in a legislature, it doesn't seem like a fun job to me, sort of no matter what legislature you're in, whether whether you're Speaker Becky or if you're Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> like, neither of those jobs seem fun because... You know, the, the, the old saying is that it's like herding cats. Like you have to pull together various factions of your own party. Sometimes you have to pull in members of the other party, not quite as often in Idaho, but certainly sometimes you have to do that. And it's an unenviable position and it can kind of make you appear, right, to be to be pretty moderate or like you're giving in to the other side when in fact it's just part of your job to try and wrangle all these votes. And so it might leave you kind of susceptible to an ideological challenge like that, right? Yeah, I think that's a great point. By, you know, trying to protect the institution or make it work, you may actually be perceived as more moderate or, or trying to compromise values and things when you're really just trying to kind of make things work. <laughs> One of the biggest surprises for me uh, looking at the primary results was finding out that Paulette Jordan is actually running for Senate, which I was unaware of, and I know that makes me look terrible. But I, I kind of found that surprising because she was a big name when she ran for governor. She definitely got a lot of national media attention, but through this primary, she doesn't seem to have a big media presence. And so I was just, well, what is your read on her campaign moving forward, and does she actually ha have much of a shot going into the general election? Well, I mean, being a Democrat trying to run for running for statewide office in Idaho, it's 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 challenging, right? Like, it's just it's really hard for Democrats to compete at the statewide level. Yeah, I mean, the Jordan campaign has been really quiet. I think there's still like a dedicated base from tw 2018 there, but it's been very quiet. Her campaign manager left a few weeks before the election. So there's been a little bit of trouble perhaps again like in 2018 and so yeah i think there's going to be a struggle moving forward they kind of her campaign needs to regroup figure things out i think we know she can get national attention and so she's probably going to need to start reaching out for for money out-of-state money right to try to help actually get a campaign off the ground yeah, so that'll be interesting for, for us to watch as we move into 2020 to see if, or towards November, to see if this is a repeat of what happened in 2018. Because, I mean, uh, I guess everybody has their own analysis of what they think of her as a candidate, but she is somebody that has gotten a lot of national attention. I would say she's gotten more national attention than any other candidate from Idaho in the last five to 10 years. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, in terms of how active her campaign is or isn't, a lot of that is tough to suss out, right? Because as you know, as we've been talking about with Joe Biden, for example, you know, yes, it's he's been tough to spot in the public, but so has everyone else. We've all been under quarantine, and so um, you know that's something we'll be keeping an eye on over the next few months. So that'll do it for another episode here of the Big Tent. We'll uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening.